Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you would like to support the Guy Jeans podcast, please write a review on iTunes or Google Reviews and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you have questions, suggestions, advertising inquiries, or would like to be a guest on the podcast, please email us at guyjeanspodcast at gmail.com. It's a Guy Jeans podcast. Hi, you guys. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Guy Jeans. Today's guest, Paul Bork, Fly Fishing Team USA member. He works for Black Rifle Coffee Company. He's all, he was the youth fly fishing team coach. He was a guide, is a guide still, but he also is a police officer uh, part-time. And uh, he has a company called Drift Media as well. So I'm excited to talk to him all about everything that he does. And without further ado, here is Paul. Paul, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm doing really good. We got a, a lot to talk to you about. Um, I just read an article about you entitled The Most Interesting Sportsman in the World. <laughs> and after reading that, man, I'm like, wow, this is this guy is interesting, man. All the different things that you've done and and are doing um so for those who don't know you know who is paul bork oh man that's a tough <laughs> one so at the end of the day i guess uh at heart i'm just a fishing nerd really i mean i love nice love to chase them love to catch them love to try to figure them out i mm-hmm. guess second you know i feel like i'm kind of a camera guy like i don't hold a camera too much anymore but i spent a lot of my life shooting photos and shooting videos and trying to kind of document the things I was seeing, like incredible things, incredible fisheries. And those, those days that we have, they only happen that way once and nice days never happen again. So, you know, I wanted to share those things and provide those experiences to people and hopefully it took as much away from them as I did. Some did, some didn't, but we do our part. I know you know that game very well yourself. Yeah. So growing up in, uh, North Carolina and then and fishing around there. I've got some questions about North Carolina sure. um, in that zone too, that I wanted to ask you about, but it sounds the story that I, I read about, it sounds like you got into fly fishing and, and really quickly um, got pretty good at it. And uh, in fact, uh, getting on the North Carolina fly fishing team and then eventually getting on fly fishing team USA. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, growing up, I I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina and there was, I had a small Creek, a very, very small Creek. But to me, that was, that was my world. That was my, you know, Atlantic ocean. That's all I had. So I learned the nuances of that tiny Creek and that, that thing is you can jump across it in most places, but I knew every inch of it, every millimeter of it. And, you know, as a kid, I was just, fishing nerd and I would kind of try to figure out where they lived, what they ate, 
spinners, the effect of, you know, bait fishing, whatever. I remember leaving, you know, uh, wet pieces of rug out in the garden. So I'd have worms underneath it to go bait fishing. And <laughs> Love I, it. I realized I started just building principles of why, why fish eat, where, what are they doing and why, how do different things affect them? High water, low water, clear, dirty, where do they sit? So on and so forth. And, you know, where I live is super diverse. So we've got everything from literally 6,000 foot mountains all the way to rivers and lakes. And, you know, as time kind of went on, it gave me all the opportunity I needed with the exception of saltwater to catch bass and, you know, bluegill and trout and catfish and all kinds of things. So I, I didn't ever really like consider myself a trout guy, quote unquote. I just loved fishing and we have a lot of trout. So by default, I was a, trout fishermen we have you know six or seven thousand miles of streams within an hour of where i live more than you can see in a lifetime for sure wow that's awesome and so you just kind of got into that and then kind of progressed into fly fishing and then got uh, on the team the north carolina team i did yeah so i was actually i had always wanted to fly fish because it seemed interesting to me and i didn't actually start a lot of people don't know this but I didn't start really fly fishing until I was 18. I was in college. We had to take a PE class, and it was either fly fishing or basketball or something. So I took fly fishing. Absolutely. I, <laughs> that was awesome. That was awesome. Yeah, that's way cool. Uh, yeah, I got credit for it, too, which is incredible. Oh, that's but awesome. I remember going out to the river, a local delayed harvest here called the Tuckasegee, and I remember you know, learning – kind of the game i bought a, a rod wherever cabela's or one of the kits you know, the standard kits that are out there uh-huh. and i remember a crazy a quick little story I, I i was going out one weekend i had my license by then so i really kind of had the world i could go wherever i wanted and I, I saw this guy catching these fish on the river and i went up to him and said, which I didn't realize that this wasn't really a thing. It's certainly not in bass fishing. You don't just go ask people randomly, especially strangers, what they're catching fish on and how and where, you know, annoying seven or 18 year old with 21 <laughs> questions. But I went up there anyway. And I remember he was kind of rude. Guy's like, uh, yeah, you know, you just gonna have to put your time in, son. Uh-huh. But, well, damn, I'm putting my time in. That's why I'm out here. You know, I'm trying. He's like, you're just gonna have to figure it out. I said, well, so I'm working on. So I'm talking to you was kind of rude and i said you know and he was fishing backstory i don't know i remember this but it was a size 14 l caracatus i remember thinking oh, i gotta that's the secret that's the fly which you and i both know it's not but <laughs> i remember that fly and i remember telling myself right then i said if i ever get good enough at this thing you know fly fishing and fishing in general to be able to teach somebody something i will never not give them the knowledge no matter what even if it's in a tournament like, I will never make anyone feel the way that guy made me feel. Like, nice. you know, I was out there hustling as hard as I could to get all the knowledge I could. And I didn't have anyone to show me anything. And I was reading, you know, this is 2004 or five. I mean, the YouTube wasn't like it is now. I don't think it even existed hardly. So I was reading everything I could, and reading all the classics, you know, all the books, all fly fishermen read. But at the end of the day, you just got to get out there and figure out. You can't fish another man's game. So I was trying to learn my own game, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's I didn't know it at the time, but that that thing would kind of put a bug a bug in me to ultimately lead me to, you know, towards the North Carolina fly fishing team and guiding and the casting stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah. You. So did you? When did you try out for the the U.S. team? 
Uh, the first time I tried to make it was in 2000 and oh gosh, I have to go back and look nine, 10, 11, somewhere in there, there was the nationals. I I'd been on, I'd gotten on the North Carolina fly fishing team and I'd met a couple of my mentors at the time, Josh Stevens, Chris Lee, so on and so forth. And they had a tremendous team. Like competitive fly fishing was absolutely exploding. Yeah. There was like 30 guys. There was tournaments every weekend. There was regional teams all across North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee. And we were competing against each other. And we were getting, we didn't know it at the time, but we were getting way, way good at it. And just like anything, we were sharing all the knowledge, so on and so forth. So we put in to, for a national championships, the Team USA one, to come to Cherokee, North Carolina which got accepted. We ran the tournament. Uh, funny side note, I actually filmed that tournament. There's a DVD of it. It was one of the first things I ever filmed in my life. But I just, I don't know. I'm not afraid to take a little risk. So I said, I'm going to fish this tournament and I'm going to film it because I want to document this thing. It's going to be awesome. I know it's going to be special. So I tried to qualify that year and didn't make it. It was doing pretty good. I needed to catch a fish in the final day on the lake. And, uh, did not even get a bite so if i would have caught a fish on that lake i would have made the team but it is what it is like yeah everyone it happens it's the thing about fishing competition you know similar to golf is you lose a lot like it's not in basketball i mean roughly you got a 50 50 shot skill aside in a fly fishing tournament or a you know a bass fishing tournament there's 200 guys or 100 guys or whatever it is you lose a lot and mm -hmm. You know, it's a good, I never got into it to, for any sort of like pride or ego thing. I just wanted to know if I was improving. Mm -hmm. Like I had to know, and there was no way for me to know with nobody coming up by myself. Like, how do you know if you're getting better? If I catch 50, that might be good. But what if you catch 100? That means I'm, I'm missing something. So for me, it was kind of a litmus test of success and making sure I was improving every day. It's interesting. The reason why I was asking the the date was, um, I believe it was 2006. They had the the regional trials here in California on yep. a, on a river uh, called the Kings River, and um, and I went to that and qualified and went to the nationals in uh, Colorado. Yep. And you're right. You know the thing the thing about it for me too was was you know you're put around all these amazing fly anglers from all over the u.s and you know most of them are actually really cool and everybody's sharing knowledge and it made me better you know it made me look at the stream differently it made me you know analyze things completely different um it made me a better guide you know just to uh you know approach the stream differently with my clients and stuff like that so yeah you're right man just getting more knowledge from that that whole experience is pretty cool I did, uh, I did go to, um, the Pennsylvania nationals as well. Were you there? That one? Uh, the one George Daniels one. Yeah. Nope. That was, I got, I ended up, I was around the scene at that time, but I was not on the team yet. I actually made the team. I forgot the year, like the next year, 13 or something in Bend, Oregon. So okay. I did not make it to North Carolina and came back yeah. the next year with a lot of lakes and actually worked on my lake game really hard and. We don't have a ton of trout here, but I caught anything swimming, brim, trout, bass, whatever I could, and kind of dialed in the process. And, you know, fish fish kind of do the same things for the same reasons. So was able to make the team in Oregon. Nice, man. Um, 
I fished. Uh, you, t- you said Josh Stevens, and um, yeah. I was on a boat with him a couple times. <laughs> you know, in the Stillwater, he's a cool dude, man. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, he was one of the our local guy that had made the team and been to New Zealand and Scotland, and yeah, he was kind of inside line to, you know, Lauren Williams and yeah. Pete and Anthony Narana and Lance Egan and all the kind of OG Team USA guys, all guys that you know I look up to still do to this day, and. He knew all those guys, you know, he knew Walt Ungerman and kind of all the OGs of the scene. And back then you got to think, you, you know, this, you were there in the early days too. Like it wasn't, it wasn't cool. Like it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing like it is now. Like nobody knew. Yeah. Knew thing. It was kind of the wild west. And yeah, exactly. I say, honestly, it probably wasn't even that refined. Like body worms are still real heavy. Like there was not a really good understanding of, you know, the techniques. It was kind of rudimentary at the time but it certainly got better quickly that's for sure i mean people really got dialed up quick on the the techniques so how did you uh, learn the techniques from the guys on the team or did you kind of study it watching everybody or how did you learn i did yeah so i remember my first practice uh, i was with the guy that was running the north carolina team eugene shuler he was oh yeah i remember eugene (laughs) yeah really good caster right like super good caster and i that's a whole nother story like i was not a great caster because i grew up on that small creek right i didn't know I mean, honestly, I didn't know you had to cast further than like 20 feet to catch a trout because well, I didn't know any different. But Eugene was showing us check nymphing, and back then it was like a six or eight foot leader, three nymphs, like rolled nymphs, snapback hooks, like super short casts, and we were just kind of dragging. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking like, ah, it's okay, but it doesn't feel like I was I was a nerd, right? So I, I remember I was like, even back as a kid, I was playing with like inflators with worms to like make the bait more natural and drift better and i would get more bites and (laughs) it just seemed counterintuitive to me to have such heavy flies but i I didn't i'm a student so i didn't say anything i just kind of took it all in but that was my first experience with that and then i started kind of dialing up my own style like i started fishing a lot of smaller flies and lighter stuff and going to real light tippets 7x and so on and so forth really early on like 10 years ago eight years ago a lot of single fly stuff and you know over time you go to a few tournaments when you have in our region we had 20 to 30 guys a weekend practicing that's 20 or 30 guys trying different things mm-hmm. we come to the table at the end of the tournament we all kind of do an AAR debrief about what's working and what's not like our team got really good really quickly and we had Josh with that international experience uh, Chris Lee ended up making Team USA in Cherokee the North Carolina Nationals, I did not. So we had, you know, we had a really, just really good group of anglers that were all talking to each other and competing regularly. So the learning curve went up, you know, our abilities went up more than exponentially, like almost straight up at the time. It's cool. You guys would all get together and talk about the techniques and stuff. I mean, that's what makes a team, right? You know, when you it know, was, yeah, yeah, it was kind of the foundations of, I didn't know it at the time that I was ultimately going to get asked to coach the U S youth team, but I knew that, you know, I was, what I was not proud of was the fact that team USA collectively had been getting our butts kicked overseas by the French and the Polish certainly and the Czechs. And, you know, I knew, um, Oh gosh, courier had won, you know, a bronze on the dry fly in the lake. And there was, 
Norman Moctima had won a silver, I recall, I think silver, maybe gold. Sorry, Norm, if you're listening. But Norm yeah. had done really well at a youth level, but Team USA had never won a team medal. And I thought, man, I've seen these guys fish. Like, I've seen Pete Erickson fish. I've seen, I've seen these guys fish, and they are tremendous. Like, they are no, no joke, like the best I'd ever seen. Like, why are we not winning? And that would kind of ultimately lead to – you know, what was the foundations of our success, which I'm sure we'll get into eventually, but Mm -hmm. with the youth team, which was this kind of team metal mentality, like our, our sole focus was to win the team gold. Mm -hmm. Cause then we knew if we all worked together with that mission, that the individual successes would follow. I think that was, you know, possibly what plagued some of the early days of team USA was there was a lot of kind of individualistic stuff there and that it's hard. Like it's hard to, have a team and an individual element and you know we found a lot of success by focusing on that team metal and there's some cool stories there yeah down the road to get into it makes sense you know just to be able to share everything like what, what worked for you man on that on that beat you know um what didn't you know what, what do you think those guys were using all that kind of stuff comes into play for sure without a doubt yeah correct so let's go into the uh the youth fly fishing team I mean, how cool was that to be able to, you guys actually did win the gold, didn't you? Yeah, we ended up winning, um, I don't want to misquote it, but three or four world championships gold. We won wow. a number of individual gold, uh, individual bronze and silver as well. Like we had a really dominant streak the four years or so I spent there. Um, that was, you know, I started in France. We did Ireland, Poland. United States like we were all over the place and you know that first team I I got was an incredible group of young guys and you know I had Robbie Worth and you know Noah Thompson and Aston Boone and all these guys they were awesome anglers and we went to France I got the team you know kind of last minute um, like a couple weeks before France but I started implementing what I thought was you know success and it was this team metal mentality and some other things technically like the way we broke down water, which we can get into, mm-hmm. uh, but we did some things that were unique and I, I didn't know if they were going to work, but I had absolute trust in their ability. And to quote Josh Stevens, one thing he told me, he said, you can never fish another man's game, which basically means like take the knowledge, but fish your way. Like if you're a, whatever, fill in the blank, if you're a yeah. go fly guy and you like seven X and a single fly, then you do that. But you know, just take the knowledge you have. Don't try to fish another man's game. Fish your way. So I, I kind of encouraged those guys to fish their way. And I started building some kind of tenants that we would use. And we were successful. We ended up winning a team silver and an individual bronze, I believe, that year. So that's amazing. Showed me this is working. You know, this, yeah. this is doable. And then that team kind of aged out. And this other team had come up that was coming up through the North Carolina team and Georgia team ranks, and they had a lot of experience. They had already competed in 30 or 40 comps. They knew the game. They knew you know, how to survive beats, how to win. Like You lose a lot, but when you have the opportunity to win, you need to win. So they knew how to manage that kind of that pace, if you will, and that team went on to be nothing short of dominant for the, the four years they were around. How, how how do they uh, approach a stream or how do you talk to them about approaching the stream? And, and So uh, that's something that's I'll get into it. It's interesting. So 
I'll tell you the basics and then I'll go back and explain it a little more. So yeah. our, our kind of philosophy is that a water, like the best water in the beat is dependent on insect activity. So for anyone listening, like a beat, you get a section that's a hundred or 200 yards long, depending on the density of the fish and you have to fish in that water. So if you're in ankle deep still water and you don't know how to dry fly fish very well, you're going to have problems. So it's, it's all, you know, this, it's all random. So sometimes you get great beats, sometimes you don't. So you have to be a versatile guy. You can't, we have the luxury as just recreational anglers or guides. If we want to fish a certain way, we just look for that water. In tournaments, you don't get that luxury. So we determined that a water was dependent on insect activity. So to back up a little bit, I remember everybody saying that, well, uh, I forgot it was uh, Eddie Pinkston. You remember Eddie? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so Eddie Pinkston was talking one time about a uh, good guy, super intelligent man. But he was talking about how the uh, the Czechs had said that they if they put a fly in every inch of the water, that they mm-hmm. would win. So there's this kind of like typewriter method where you just grid back and forth and just cover it all. Well, I, I just thought intuitively like, well, that's not true. If I put my fly in the highest probability water based on the conditions, I'm going to win all things equal skill equal. So I said that I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't, I'm going to figure out a better way. So I started kind of trying to figure out the system and I'll tell you the story that helped might as well. So I, I I do, I study the sport, you know, and I started reading a lot of with the help of Google translate, a lot of articles from France and the Czech Republic about these competitive teams because they'd been competing for 20, 25 years, 30 years we have the luxury of public water. In Europe, they don't. So the only way you can get on some of these streams is to be a part of a club. You get a bunch of dudes together in a club, what happens? Competition starts. That was the earliest kind of forms of Phipps Moosh. So, and you get a bunch of guys that are good on pressured water, and then you get really good anglers. So they, they were better than us, and we knew it. I knew it. So I read about this guy, John Ostier, who was a coach of the French team, and he was a a bit of a tyrant, but he was certainly effective. He, he won a lot in the 90s and 2000s. And I, I'd found out through a couple articles that his son had passed away, unfortunately, in a, I forgot it was a car wreck or something, but he kind of walked away from the sport. And I always said to myself, man, I'd love to be able to talk to a guy like that with 15 years of coaching experience. Like mm-hmm. he'd forgotten things that I wish I knew. So I just put his name in the back of my head. I go to Mon France that first year with the boys. And uh, I see this guy fishing what is ultimately kind of long lining, a very specific style, essentially like floating a cider, essentially is what we'll call it. Mm-hmm. So I see this older gentleman doing it at this bridge, and I'm like, man, that's the kind of avant-garde thing that's not, you know, drowning a hair's ear under an indicator. This is pretty advanced stuff. I wonder who that is. So in typical fashion, I just walk down there, and I say, hey, my name's Paul. I go to USU team. Do you speak English? He says, yes, I do. I said, what's your name? He says, Jan Ostier. And I said, no way. <laughs> oh, I know who you are. And he said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. I told him about all the articles I'd read, so on and so forth. And I said, would you be interested in taking us out tomorrow? So he said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I'll tell you what I learned. And it was probably the single biggest thing I ever learned in fly fishing. And it was this. So we, and this is the A waters dependent on insect activity. We went to the stream and there was a, there was a bend in the river. And, you know, picture any inside bin. The inside bin is the kind of sexiest, fishiest looking water to any fly fisherman, right? Mm-hmm. 
and outside bend is that that seam is narrow on the outside, but there certainly is a seam. So he said, uh, if you have 10 casts, where are you going to make them to catch fish? I said, well, I'm going to put eight casts on the inside and two casts on the outside. He said, I'm going to beat you. I said, why? He said, because bugs aren't hatching. I said, okay. I didn't know what he meant. Mm -hmm. So I made those casts. He said, well, go ahead and fish. And he's mayflies were coming off. I said, oh, this is mayflies. Funny story. He says, no, the mayflies are flies that hatch in May. This is Danica. It's a type of fly. I said, well, Danica is hatching. They're basically big white mayflies about a size 12. So I said, I'm going to throw, you know, a pheasant tail and a 14 and see what happens. Dry dropper. And I, I do that and I, I don't catch many and we go on up the river and then we come back and he says, okay, now what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to throw my flies on the outside bin, that narrow seam. Cause I've learned my lesson from this morning. He said, I'm going to beat you. Well, you should be fishing inside. It was opposite. I said, I don't understand. Jan. will you explain it to me? And he said, yeah. He said, I want you to picture the water as just a conveyor belt for food. Short of spawn, spawning, a fish's only job in life is to eat more than it burns calorie-wise. So when bugs are hatching and there's a plethora of bugs, fish will be on the inside bin because it's easier for them to consume the most food there. They can just kind of bounce around and eat and do their thing. He said, but when bugs aren't hatching, the largest pro like probability or the highest probability area where the most food or the little bit of food that's available is is on that outside bend so those fish will shift over the outside bend to get whatever pickings they can get he said so in france we we prioritize our water based on insect activity mm -hmm. it also applies to pocket water so when bugs are hatching so i'll ask this question I, i've asked this before you ever go through a section of pocket water with nymphinger finger dry drop or whatever it doesn't matter and you catch them course we all have yeah you ever go through the section of pocket water and you don't catch them at all and you're like man where are they at sure of course we all and what jan said was when bugs are hatching they'll be in those pockets really well because it's an easy place for them to get food when bugs are not hatching or there's no insect activity they'll be back in kind of i can't describe it but some of those troughs and other places where the highest probability of the little bit of food coming down is that that's where you'll find those fish kind of condensed. And they do that really quickly, faster than people realize. So I took that principle and we started applying it to our local rivers and places we knew well. And I would always teach them how to nymph shallow, medium, and deep, like in the column. And a fish that is up shallow fighting the current, obviously, and feeding is actively feeding. Mm -hmm. So if you're fit deep and you're catching fish and all of a sudden – fish start coming medium and shallow you know that something's happening like a hatch doesn't matter what it is like that's for you to determine it's situational but we start to shift our focus on how much time we're spending on certain water types based on the insect activity and that was really that and then focusing on the team metal mentality was the fact that we were able to i mean i say it modestly but yeah. dominate the world scene for quite some time and most anglers want to focus on what fly it is we're guilty i'm guilty of that sure the flies don't matter you know i never i never told my guys what leader they had to fish that was up to them as long as it was effective i was happy because again going back to stevens you can't fish another man's game mm -hmm. as long as 
turn over, I was cool with it. I didn't particularly care. You know, trout have the brain the size of a Fruit Loop and a single <laughs> digit. They're not particularly smart, but they are pre- they're extremely conditioned. So as long as it was size, shape, and color in that order, I think it was fine. We fished a lot of, you know, some of the famous flies came from our our tournaments, you know, the the mop flies from here and the France fly. And, mm-hmm. you know, the French we obviously took from the French, but mm-hmm. essentially they're all pheasant tails and hare's ears. So we didn't overthink our fly selection too much. We just made sure that we spent our time in the highest probability water. And the, the kind of little much smaller portion of that was we would determine our pace, like how quickly we covered water based on fish density. So, you know, the less fish there are, you know, that's kind of determines your pace. And if there's a lot of fish, you do other things, but you know, those basic principles we would apply in practice tournaments in North Carolina, Colorado, and then ultimately France, Italy, Ireland, Poland, United States, you name it. And what you find is, it works everywhere, you know? Yeah. It, fish do the same thing for the same reasons. Now, there's nuances with a grayling or a brown trout. There's certainly nuances in still water fishing with how those fish feed. But once you learn what those are, like you have the fundamentals. You have the, unlike not unlike any sport, the basics. Joe Humphrey said this, a you know, mentor of mine and certainly one of the best to do it, but he was a career wrestling coach. And he told his wrestlers when this applies to fishing, that the basics practice to perfection make champions nice. and nothing we did. People would watch us and it doesn't look different. Like, but if you really watch, we were certainly doing things differently. Like we fished very light. We fished upstream. We fished, you know, certain ways, a water dependent on insect activity and the, they would be really hung up on what flies we were fishing. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned over the years, and you know, this, like you take 10 guys and you open their fly box and what's in there, it's the same stuff. Yeah, you know that you've been around a long time, so it's the same flies. Like it's yeah. a pheasant tail with a copper bead. I mean, it's yeah. Did you? That was that's some excellent information. Thanks for that, man. That that was awesome. Uh-huh. Appreciate that. Um, and that's going to be huge for a lot of the listeners to to hear. Um, did you find that, like, in some countries or even some rivers that? you know, you would find that certain colors were working or when the water was murky, did you guys, you know, switch to purples or, or whatever? What did you guys find um, in that kind of a situation? Yeah. So I think it's kind of, I would start with what's in the area. So one mm-hmm. thing we did, and it sounds kind of rudimentary, but it works is everybody looks at, you know, everyone knows how to like pump a trout or flip over a rock or whatever. I just look at, you know, the rocks. I'd look at spider webs in the morning. Like mm-hmm. we spiders are really good at catching bugs. They have to. <laughs> so I'd look around and if you see a bunch of like dip tear midges or whatever, like, okay, there's midges around. You see betas, like you start to get an idea, like, okay, betas, size eighteen. Yeah, blue wings eighteen. Like I can throw a zebra midge or a size eighteen Frenchie. And if there were stone flies around, like that was that was the the kind of killer for us, specifically with dirty water mm-hmm. was this was pre or right when the squirmy wormy was coming up and even pre squirmy wormy. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, you look at the size, like if there's big Brachycentris or certainly the big stone flies, like the Terranarsis or whatever, if there's big stone flies present or sculpins, like size, shape, and color. So you could, you know, a number of things. It doesn't take long if you, if you know exactly where the fish are at. Like if you got a, 
a stretch of water that definitely has the fish. You can cycle through the flies and mm-hmm. it could be jigging a slump buster. It could be drowning a squirmy wormy or a mop. It could be, you know, a turd. I'm sure you remember that fly, but the past yeah. rubber leg. Yeah. You know, something dark, size, shape, and color. A lot of times you could dial in on what it was. Like me personally, if the water's high and off color, I'm looking for an obvious current seam that's going to stack trout. Even if it's a community holes, it's still going to be there. Yeah. And then I'm going to drift through. My go-to is going to be a mop. It's going to be a, we call them turds, but Pat's rubber leg. It's going to be a squirmy. Mm-hmm. And then color-wise, generally dark. Like we didn't, especially in off-color water. Uh, clear water, we'd, we'd mess with some hot spots, but I would go with a size 10 Pat's rubber leg with a four millimeter bead. And mm-hmm. I would drift it through a few times. And if it didn't work, I'd start jigging it through, you know, uh-huh. and then <laughs> awesome. at that point, you got to just grind them out. You know, when it's, I could give you examples, we'll save some of those, but had yeah. plenty of tournaments where water blew out and things got weird. And yeah. the other thing too, I would go to a single fly. So, you know, those fish are, it's not about, how often you get drifts in there, it's about getting good drifts in there. So I would fish a single fly, whatever it may be. Um, I think George Daniel, he may correct me, but I'm pretty sure he won one or had a great session in Pennsylvania during that flood that you guys were there. Yeah. Jigging a <laughs> buster behind a rock. And, yeah. I remember that. Your life, but he knew they'd be there. It was the only, was it the best water on the river? Certainly not, but it was the best water he had his beat. Yeah. So George is fierce and, dangerous as hell like he he's he can beat you anywhere and does regularly sure but you know he took the slump buster behind that rock because that's what he had and he made it happen so yeah i was uh that was the next beat down from him (laughs) (laughs) it was a lot of water flowing through the oh my god it was raging through there man you had to find like a little tiny eddy to you know it was it was tough that whole that whole competition was pretty tough brutal yeah so um Let's talk about uh, your casting and uh, being a MCI and all that. So you became a, oh, what's that? I said, okay, we can do that. So I'll try to, <laughs> I, know, I know my stories go long, but I'll abbreviate them. <laughs> no, no the worries. They're great, man. Me, Love it. Learning a lot, man. The got me into uh, tournament fishing was a guy named Gordon Vanderpool. He's a local guy. Mm-hmm. One of the best anglers I know, period. Like he's tremendous. And he said, hey, you should, you should, uh, we had this tournament called the Rumble in the Rhododendron and it paid something like $10,000 to win. You got to remember, like I grew up on welfare, like I certainly know what no money is. So I was like, $10,000 is a lot. Sure. And I want to win that thing. So there was a casting competition and you had to cast, like it was a bunch of accuracy targets and then distance, which they would times by three and add that to your total score. And that first year, I remember like Rick Hartman and Eugene Schuler just blew everybody away. And those guys are really good, obviously. <laughs> so I said, well, if I can't make the casting competition, I can never get through to the tournament to win. So that was my goal was get figure out how to cast. And Gordon took me out and he, he wasn't a CI or anything yet. He just was a, is a good, a great caster and said, I'll teach you. So we set the targets out, 25, 35, 55 feet. There was a roll cast thing and a distance thing. And I couldn't even hit the 25-foot target. I had no I, no concept of what a loop was. I 
didn't need it because I fish small streams and you could just kind of flop out whatever out there and make it happen. <laughs> yeah. So he started kind of working with me and teaching me kind of the basics. And I started putting these kind of tenants in my head. I didn't know it at the time, but they were federation based things that he had read, like stop your rod tip high. That's an Al kite thing. Right. Or, you know, the five essentials and being obviously the gamble brothers. And I didn't know it, but I was starting to learn the basics of what was, the federation's core principles in casting and how to how to throw a tight loop so i could i'm not being dramatic gordon will vouch for me i could not hit a 25 foot target bullseye and i started practicing i said well there's no way i'm going to beat these guys unless i practice so i started casting every day and like anything i obsessed over it i was policing full time <laughs> so i would listen to podcasts from you know al burr and the Ray Jeffs and anybody I could, anybody, anybody and everything I could and started on my days off and every day after work, I'd practice casting, started watching videos and I, I probably consumed a lifetime's worth of knowledge in six months or a year. And then I met a guy named Mac Brown who I'd known already. He was on the team on the North Carolina team and everyone knew he'd written casting angles, which is a tremendous book on the sport and was certainly the brightest, probably I would say arguably one of the smartest guys I know and certainly the smartest as far as casting goes. I called him as well and said, Hey, here's what I want to do. And he gave, he was wonderful and gave me all the attention I needed and gave me a lot of homework. And I just started casting and started getting a lot of interest in like two handed stuff. And cause you know, to and fro casting, which is fine back and forth. Single plane casting is great unless you live in the smoky mountains where there's rhododendron everywhere you go. And that doesn't fly for long. So I started learning some of these things. And I started getting into Skagit. I read Eddie Ward and I read all these things I could just immersing myself in casting. So I go back the, the next year uh, for the rumble and the rhododendron and actually win the cast tournament. No way. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Great story. But I mean, I wow. put the time and I, I got to pick the first B. I think we won I think we won that tournament. I can't remember exactly. We won it a couple times, and lost it a couple times, and one of the one of the prizes was a Sage Z axis. And for the first time in my life, I had a tool that, to me, I still have the rod. It means a lot to me. But this thing was like the keys to the kingdom. To quote Joe Humphrey, <laughs> awesome. you know, I, uh, the highest quality tool that you could pot is a nine foot five weight. Yeah, you could pot have <laughs> and then Matt said hey you know are you interested in this casting instructor thing I said well what is it I don't know I don't teach I mean I, I guide and I teach people how to cast but he said you know it's he's like it's a it's a it's not a badge of honor it's a methodology to teach people how to cast and you can speak the same language that I do like do you know about slack acceleration power pause tip paths you know whatever it may be, transverse waves and loop propagation and all this stuff. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, if you go through this, you'll, you'll be able to speak the same language as me. I said, I'm in, you, you had me at hello. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> and I started working on it and I went to, went and took my CI and I took it with Eric Cook and uh, Mike or Tom Rupening and a couple of these a couple Southeastern guys that were, are tremendous casters and I passed it. So then they knew I was kind of underneath Mac's tutelage at this point. Mac was, is pretty legendary. So 
you know, I felt a lot of pressure to not let Mac down to be the best I could be and to really, you know, be a good caster, but also an instructor, most importantly. And I did it. So then Mac said, you know, there's this thing called the master casting instructor. It's, it's really hard. They can ask you any sort of number of questions. Nothing's off limits. The test is infinitely harder than the CI test. It's changed recently, but, you know, it's hard. Yeah. So I started studying for that. And about a year later, I took it with uh, David Diaz, who's passed recently, a tremendous guy. Uh, Eric Cook, who's an engineer, and a bunch of these guys that ended up passing. But, you know, that year of my life I spent now, I mean, really obsessing, like doubling down, reading all I could, really getting into the nitty gritty of what what is this thing? Like, how how does a rod bend? What exactly is a loop? What's happening in the loop face? Like, I mean, we got into the weeds big time and I, I ate it up. You know, I, I consumed all the knowledge I could and went in that. Everyone said, like, most people are going to fail it. So I was fully prepared to fail. Like, I was a yeah. competitive angler. I knew how to lose. I lost a lot more often than I won. And uh, I said, all right, yeah, I'm ready. I'm going to go take it and pass it. That's incredible, man. Yeah, I started doing some of the testing with, you know, the guys around here. And I, I don't stay as busy as I used to, to be honest with you, but I love it. Like, I love casting. I love, to this day, I still study it. I still love the things I learned, like six-step methods and Bruce Richards and all these things. Like, these guys are pioneers, and it works. And now I'm able to, you know, we don't we don't know each other, never met each other, but you and I could... I'm confident could sit with a group of 10 students and you and I could and instantly speak the same language and help, help them based on their ability level because of yeah. you know, the Fed's kind of foundation. What, uh, okay, here's, here's a great question to people that are aspiring to be casting instructors. Um, what advice would you give them? I would tell them that, First, first is if you're looking at looking to it as a badge of honor, that's not you're looking at it from the wrong place. And I would tell you don't do it because this this may be unpopular, but I'll just say it because I don't care. Yeah, becoming a guide in the state of North Carolina just means that you pay ten dollars on top of your fishing license. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you're a guide, in my opinion. Doesn't certainly doesn't mean you're a good angler. And we all know we don't have to name names. We all know people that are guides that are not good fishermen or good anglers. And for me, I took it personally. Like I wanted to be the best I could be. I wanted to know that the knowledge I was sharing, like the place I came from in guiding other than to make money, but honestly in my heart, what, what I wanted to do was to make sure that you didn't need me. I wanted to bring all the knowledge that you were capable of absor absorbing in a half day or a full day. And I would take you out as much as you wanted to, but I wanted you to not need me. I wanted you to be able to go look and say, okay, Fisher up, dry dropper, boom, boom, boom. Here's what I'm going to do by yourself and you go out and catch them. That was success to me. So to me, the casting instructor, the CI, which I encourage everyone to do, but it is a teaching qualification. It gives you an ability and a, a knowledge base and a curriculum to be able to teach somebody to diagnose and correct casting faults. Because the most frustrating thing to any new fly fisherman, myself included, was I see the fish and I can't reach them. Mm -hmm. What separates the very best from the not so good is line control. 
it's not fly selection. You can read a million articles about the best flies. They're all pheasant tails and hares ears. What separates people is the ability to get a drag-free drift in front of a fish. And there's a lot of crap instruction out there with people that don't know what they're talking about. So if you want a badge of honor, that it's not for you. But if you want to have a bulletproof method to make someone to cause and the cause and correction of casting faults and make them better anglers and to be able to speak the same language as a group of thousands of other people, then you should absolutely take it and it'll make you better. Like I'm able now, like today as we speak, I don't cast like I used to I'm doing a lot of bass fishing and stuff, but I still use those things. Like if I have a tailing tendency or if I'm not casting great, I can, I'm going through the Bruce Richard six step. I'm, going through the things I learned to fix myself and it works. It's always worked. That's why it's, you know, the program that it is. So that would be my advice is really look at what place you're trying to get to. If you're just trying to put a feather in your cap, Mm -hmm. maybe save your time. Mm -hmm. If you're looking to really be able to have a solid foundation to understand the cause and correction of common casting problems and, you should have been started on it a month ago. I love your um, your explanation and determination of you know immersing yourself in in casting. You know, which a lot of people don't realize. You know, to become a casting instructor, master casting instructor, you got to you got to know everything and really immerse yourself into hours and hours of reading and teaching and casting, and so. My question is, how many hours do you think it takes for a a person to get their CI? Their CI, I would say it depends on their ability. So mm-hmm. let me answer it shortly. Uh, I don't know, a thousand? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say but the same thing. If, I'd say a thousand, but again, it depends on how people learn. Mm-hmm. So some people, like, I grew up, I was a nerd, I like, I mean, I'm a big guy, but I like video games. I play guitar. I have hand-eye coordination. Like I like throwing darts and hitting golf balls and pitching baseball, <laughs> yeah. catching footballs. So I had some hand-eye coordination. But some people are auditory learners. Like they have to hear it. Some people are kinesthetic. They need mm-hmm. to, you know, let me hold your hand, like to mm-hmm. and fro, like all that type of stuff. Everyone learns differently. So it depends on the person. The test is a very, very attainable test. You know the. The skills are very basic. You know, I, I know it's changed a little. And I'm familiar with the test now, but the old test was, you know, changing rod plane, like throwing a tight loop, like ex- explain the cause and correction of tailings loops. Mm-hmm. But the, the kind of hard part, and this is what I guess I failed on the most because I'm a nerd and I want to talk about transverse waves and stupid stuff. <laughs> but they would say, you know, uh, a a good instructor can explain things simply. Mm. So I I really prided myself on not getting into the weeds and being able to take, take a group of people, which I did a lot, teach them a roll caster, pick up and lay down and fix the tailing loop. Like I used to think to myself, how can I answer this in as few sentences as possible? Or maybe one sentence, you know, Mm -hmm. how do I make this very simple? Because a person trying to just add a little distance on their cast doesn't care about, you know, the frequency of counterflex. Like that doesn't matter. They just want to know the basics. Stop your rod tip high. Like, what is acceleration? Maybe it's pause. You know, and I would ask people, are you a musician? 
if you play music, pause is simply timing. Mm-hmm. If you have no musical ability, then I have to explain pause differently. But, you know, a co- you know this, but a common thing is, you know, too short of a stroke or too short of a pause, which leads to creep. Very fixable problem. Super simple to fix. So I would try to make those things really simple. And I, what I would do is show them what they were doing, explain what they were looking for, show them what creep was with me so I could explain it and they could see it and they could watch. I'm covering all the learning styles and then explain to them how to fix it. Mm-hmm. And most of the time they would sort it out and they could fix it right away. But I think, you know, all in all, depending on the person, I'd say a thousand hours you could get there. So you, you said that about six, it took you about six months until you took the test for the MCI. So how many hours do you think that you put in to get your MCI? I think it was actually a year. So if I oh, recall correctly, I, I thought I was ready in six months. I'll copy that. But I, Mac and I, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for Mac, but I thought that if I took it too early, that they might think, not think I was ready. What, and I don't think what, what people didn't realize about me was like probably some undiagnosed ADD. But if I hyper focus <laughs> on something, I consume the lifetimes of knowledge of knowledge and put it in my memory banks in six months. Yeah. So I thought, well, let me wait a year because I thought they would gig me if I took it six months. So I actually waited right at about a year and I went to the next, I can't remember where it was. One of the conclaves actually was here, I believe, and took my MCI test. Um, yeah. So it was about a year. Wow. That's incredible, man. That really is. And I didn't know it, but I was actually learning MCI stuff during my CI. So Mac, yeah. who was kind of my tutor through all of it, w- wouldn't let me rest on the basics. Mm-hmm. Like, he wouldn't let me rest on this, like, you know, positive curve or whatever it is. He was actually teaching me master-level stuff and sending me down the road of master-level stuff mm-hmm. as a CI. I, I didn't really know that because I hadn't looked at the MCI. I was really task-oriented. I'd looked at it kind of, but I was really kind of focused on the CI. I knew the questions. I knew I really understood, or I thought I did, and still think I mostly do, like why those things happen, like the cause and correction of tailing loops, when they happen, how to see like in the cast where they happen and how they you know, kind of propagate in a loop. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was already – you know, kind of beyond the CI level when I took the CI. Once I took the CI and passed it, then I was like, all right, I'm going to look into this MCI. And mm-hmm. it is a much, it's not twice as hard as the CI. Like it's 10 times as hard. Not so much the test. Like we can all throw, you know, we can throw the, you know, whatever the men's at different places, but that's not, the tasks aren't the hard part. The hard part is anything is open for discussion. And, how do you prepare for that? Like you have to be yeah. a student, but you have to be ready for, and it's also kind of individualistic to the, the examiner. Mm-hmm. Like I had David Diaz, who was a casting board of governor and had a tremendous amount of knowledge. I had Eric cook who was a, I didn't know who I was going to get for the record, but I had Eric cook who was an engineer. So he's going to talk to you about force as mass acceleration. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> That you know one half mass velocity squared. So you have to be really like you can't half ass it. You have to be which as it should be, you have to be pretty pretty dialed in to be able to to pass the test. And as I learned as I went on to, to administer other tests, both CIs and MCIs, I learned really quickly that 
you know, you're, you can fake it for about half the test, mm-hmm. but towards the end, like deficiencies are glaring mm-hmm. and they, they will pounce on you and you will not pass. Oh, that's all good stuff, man. Love it. So let's talk about uh, Drift Media. Is that your company? Sure. It is. What, what is Drift Media? So Drift Media started, uh, I was policing full-time, guiding, and I started shooting photos and videos, doing some fly fishing film tour stuff. Uh, the first thing I ever filmed was the 2011 National Championships in Cherokee. I just wanted to document fishing. Like, I, you know, it, such, it's so important to me. It's all I thought about. I was like, man, maybe, I don't know. I mean, teach myself how to shoot photos and videos. At that point, there was, you could watch YouTube until you passed out every night. There's plenty of things to watch. You just had to go practice, figure it out. So I started shooting videos and photos, and I was always into marketing and branding. Yeah. And just started kind of like anything, just hyper focusing on what makes a good brand and what are success. More importantly, what is failures? Like, what can we learn from things that didn't go well? And there was millions of articles and pieces of content out there that where people talked about it openly. So to me, I saw it as, you know, that guy when I was 17 with the tan elk hair caddis in the Tuckasegee River that told me to take a hike. <laughs> like, that's fine. But now I have millions of articles where they're telling me the exact answer and they're discussing what went right, what went wrong from marketing standpoints or creatively. So I started reading it and unlike, not unlike fishing, you can't fish another man's game. I started shooting stuff in my own style, like videos and photos. And then pretty quickly it felt like ages, but over a couple years I started filming fly fishing film tour stuff and that started going well. The people started calling saying, Hey, I want to talk about, you know, my brand and my look and my image and some marketing things. So I started doing all that. And then, you know, a couple of years into it, I was able to start, you know, I started working for some really big brands, some really big startups that became famous brands in the industry. And, you know, yeah. kind of trial and error stuff. We didn't always get it right. I certainly didn't. I'm 38 now. Like I made a lot of mistakes, but I learned from them all and started kind of building my own style. And, you know, got a good reputation in the industry, like hunting, fishing, shooting, that type of stuff, stuff I was into and started getting calls. People always wanted media and marketing stuff and the economy changes how much people need that service. And I looked at myself like the easy button. I could come in and a la carte as little or as much as you wanted. And mm-hmm. we started doing a lot of cool work and up until, you know, going to work full time for Black Rifle that's what I did day in and day out was telling those brand stories and shooting the imagery to support it. What, uh, what films did you guys do for, um, for the, Oh man, uh, I shot, let's see here. I shot Dubai on the fly. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, the African tiger, tiger fish. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. That's cool. Um, most recently I shot Das boat with, for meat eater, the boat series. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. I'm trying to think, gosh, we did a bunch of them. Yeah, that's cool, man. But striper stuff. It just would like I was again. I'm a sub. I'm a camera guy, so I did a lot of stuff. Like you know, anybody that would pay me, I did it. But we did a lot of work in hunting as well. We did some TV show stuff. You know, we did fin chasers. We did some hunting shows. We mm-hmm. did a number of things. I landed some, you know, some bigger clients throughout the years that kind of helped me take a breath. Like it's a hard world. You know, you're you have to you're getting paid a day rate. So you do them. I mean, you, anyone can do the math. You get four five, six, seven hundred 700 a day, which sounds great. 
but yeah. you have off days, you have travel days, you have expenses. So yeah, to make any sort of real money, which is what I needed to do to leave law enforcement full time, you got to put yourself on the road 130 days a year. Mm-hmm. So the way I looked at it was, you know, if I put my brain into 130 days a year of anything, I can get good at it. I, I had for the first time in my life, I had confidence in myself, but I also knew how quickly it went away. So I always work like somebody was trying to take it from me. Just went above and beyond and just tried to be as authentic as I could. Because I always felt like that was kind of our motto. Authenticity is a powerful qualifier. So when somebody, I never even told people that I worked with, I worked with all the big fly brands, but some of them knew me, but mm-hmm. they never could quite figure out why the things worked as well as they did until they, they asked the question. And then they realized like I competed and I guided and it was an MCI and they said, God, you should have said something. <laughs> you know, that's I was hoping it would translate in my work, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, coming from your eye as an angler, man, can make it, make all that stuff look killer, you know, cause a lot of people don't have that, you know, just the angles of the water and the casting and all that, I'm sure plays a big role in, in how all your stuff looks, you know? Yeah. And I got, you know, I got connected through fly fishing and fishing with my mentors. Like I grew up watching Flip Pallet and Walker's Gate Chronicles and Larry Dahlberg and Hunter Big Fish. And yeah. through fishing, I look back now as I get a little bit older. And those are the things I look back on that were the funnest times of my life. Like, I'm, you know, Larry's a mentor of mine and one of my favorite people in the world and getting to hang and meet and no flip. And the time I spent with Blaine Chocolate, you know, way, way back in the day, we're still great friends to this day. And like all these guys that, I still look up to like they're they're the kind of pioneers of all this stuff and although i don't fly fish competitively anymore and i i certainly don't i used to just only fly fish now i do a lot of different things which is you know larry encouraged me to do but i still keep up with all these guys they're still the brightest minds and the people that inspire me the most i, I didn't look up to you know i didn't care too much about michael jordan growing up i knew who he was but you know, I looked at Zell Roland and Bassmaster Classic and, you know, <laughs> right. Larry Dahlberg <laughs> awesome. and Jose <laughs> and, you know, These were the guys that I was just like, man, these are my Michael Jordans. You know? <laughs> so what makes a good brand? Oh, man. So <sighs> keep it simple. Yeah. First, let's define what is a brand. Brand is what people say about you when you aren't in the room. Mm-hmm. And if... If they're saying what they're saying about you is accurate, like if they say whatever your brand may be, like if that's accurate, then you're doing a good job. So if it's not, then you have to adjust that. So it makes a good brand is when you have a well-built-out customer journey, so that kind of consideration, awareness, familiarity, purchase, you have the ability for someone to associate with your brand and then purchase your product, and that's all well thought out. And you have a unique selling point or value proposition that's dialed in and you remain authentic and you provide value, whether that be content or in some cases it could be, you know, whatever support for, mm-hmm. you know, humanitarian causes, everything's different. But when all those things align, it's the clearest picture you'll ever see. There's no work to do. It's just maintenance. Now, that's often difficult because people ruin brands. Brands don't ruin brands. People ruin brands. So they have all these other visions and 
oftentimes it's not even people, it's egos. That's what I see the most is, you know, ego is the downfall of most brands. And at the end of the day, you have to look at, am I providing, you know, value, that unique selling point of that value proposition of my customer? Am I authentic? Am I solving? Is my mission set correct? And, you know, you look at, when you walk into the office at Red Bull, it says a mission to fascinate. Like they're very clear of what their job is and people, they don't know why they're there sometimes. And, you know, to, there was a line one time in a movie that Johnny Cash movie and, uh, he's singing some gospel song and the producer says, you know, if this is your last day on earth, if you're dying in a ditch, like, is that the song you're going to sing me? Some kind of tired old gospel song that we've heard a million times. And he bust into Folsom Prison Blues. So <laughs> in that movie, Folsom Prison Blues, that's his unique selling point. That's his value proposition. And some people call it the elevator pitch. I think that's a little kind of two broad strokes. But, you know, kind of put simply, why sh- there's a lot of noise in the world. Why should we give a crap about you? Mm-hmm. There's ways we could dive into that for hours. But, you know, yeah. if you've got a unique selling point, if you've got something actually tangible, there's only a couple ways to get it right and a million ways to get it wrong. So don't get me wrong. There's also bad ideas. Like if you mm-hmm. want to sell, you know, hot and ready pizza to your door in 45 minutes or it's free and call it Domino's too. Like you're not going to do really well because there's already a business model for that. But if you're actually providing something unique and you, to quote Joe Humphreys, if you execute the basics exceptionally, you win. Love it. And a lot of people are unclear about what the basics are. You know, they get into those positions and I don't want to name names, but really big companies, you get people in there and they want happens at, you know, where I'm at now. People want to be close to what they feel is like the fame or the stardom. At the end of the day, I kind of treat it like competition. Like you're only as good as your last tournament. And mm-hmm. people will will kind of crap on competitive fly fishing as this or that or competitive angling in general. But you know what happens in competitive any fishing is you lose a lot. Mm-hmm. Egos don't last long. So nobody in the history of ever, like Kevin Van Dam's probably the best competitive angler to ever do it. He still lost. He only won less than 1% of the time, one half of 1%. So, you know, ego is the most dangerous thing on the planet. And mm-hmm. confidence, fine. confidence is great. Yeah, but ego is super dangerous, and it's something I try to combat every day. Certainly at work and in tournaments and all that stuff. Um, people see it's easy to you know talk for an hour and talk about world championships and all this stuff, but they don't see like to to stay at the highest level at anything. Something will be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. It could be personal time. It could be friends. Could be family. You know, I've certainly lost all of those. So there's a balance of do you want to be the best or do you just want to be a participant? Mm-hmm. And you have to be clear with yourself about that. Like if you just want to, if you're 20 years old and you just like the idea of the guiding lifestyle, you just want to make a little extra money, move to the mountains, you know, go to some college in the mountains, pick, pick a place, make a little extra money and be around that community. That's fine. Or do you want to be the best, mm-hmm. but know what it is and damn sure don't spend your time taking food off the table that people trying to be the best be honest with yourself and know, know your place. I always was. I never, that's why I never, I had people at the time say, Oh, you should do more podcasts. You should be in this book. You should do these things. I never did it. 
because I wasn't, I was a niche guy. Like I didn't try to be the best guide on the planet. I just happened to have a skill set that I wanted to use to feed my family because I needed the extra money. So I would always push people towards Gordon, you know, my mentor, like he's guiding for a living, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not, I, I never tried to make a living in fly fishing. I just tried to be the best competitor and angler I could be. I tried to make sure that if somebody asked me a question, I could give them the best answer I could. Mm -hmm. So I never made feel like the guy made me feel with the caddis when I was 17. So <laughs> I would say be honest with yourself and know your place. Like I, I get frustrated and I'll speak for myself and you don't have to comment on it, but <laughs> you know, a lot of these young guys that come in and they want to, and I, I want them to be excited. Fly fishing's awesome. Fishing is awesome, but don't, don't skip the middle part. Like don't try to like, how do I say that without sounding like a dick? Like, you know, and like, don't, don't try to get to the cool guys table and miss all the stuff. That's the, the most important, which is the fight to get the knowledge, to be better. The reps it takes the days of not catching the days of sucking. Mm. Like that's what matters the most. Not, you know, there's so many guys that look the part and can talk the talk and they will talk down to competition or this and that. But the truth of the matter is they couldn't catch a fish at SeaWorld. Mm -hmm. So, like, don't skip the beginning to try to get to the end. Because the older I get, it's the beginning that matters. The beginning being, like, the struggle. And while you're thinking about how do I get to the next party to be around influencers, the guys that inspire me, you know, the Gordons, guys like you that have spent your life in fishing, those guys are still thinking about how can I provide a better service to my clients? How can my shop be better? What can I do? Like, those are the guys that inspire me. So that's why I never, I never tried to go present, you know, this knowledge and all this stuff. Cause I was like, I don't want to take away from the people that are truly making a living at it. So I would, I would share it for free, of course, but it was always individualized. If that makes sense. Totally. I love it, man. This is, this is a great podcast. Thank you so much, man, for, for doing this. I got one last subject I want to talk to you yeah. about. <laughs> Um, that is a uh, black rifle coffee, man. Tell me about that and what you do there and what black sure. rifle coffee is all about. Sure. So I currently, um, in the direct, the, excuse me, the director of strategic partnerships at black rifle and influencers. I'm proud of that. It's a big book of business. It's a big company. And when I started there, which was, uh, four years ago, you know, we had 50 some employees now we have like 850. We've gone oh public. Oh my God, that's crazy. The revenue has grown tremendously, but it's a, there's a lesson. So I'm extremely proud of the brand. I've worked my ass off here. I will continue to do it. I, I love everyone I work with and the brand and what it is. Certainly not easy, but I think probably learning, like I'm, I don't look for easy necessarily, mm -hmm. but black, I started at Black Rifle. They were a growing brand. You know, they had the same values as I, I carried a gun for a living, still work part-time. So I've been doing that 14 years. A lot of these guys were military and law enforcement, first responders. So we spoke the same language. It's kind of big boy rules where you're to explain. It's like you're only judged basically on your ability to execute. Like nobody cares if, you know, nobody cares really. Like they don't white, black, yellow, blue. That doesn't matter. You're mm -hmm. just based like mission effectiveness. And I like that. That's cool for me. You know, and I, grew up in that environment certainly so I, I came in to be the fishing and hunting guy they needed help back in the day they were just starting to grow quickly and they needed somebody authentic 
that could help with the outdoors and help kind of steer them on some of the content and the partnerships because if you get in bed with the wrong partners early as a growing brand it's it's not irrecoverable but it's very expensive and it's dangerous so i took that seriously and i started working for him as a subcontractor with drift media and then over time you know i built some programs and made mistakes and made some wins and ultimately kind of rose the food chain to where i was solving enough high level problems where they offered me a job full-time about a year ago and i took it you know deep down is what i always wanted to do i, I was around a lot of you know i've seen hundreds of millions of dollars in growth with brands I'd been with, but I always, I never felt like I was at home. I felt like I was doing a job that ultimately I would be replaced at. And that's kind of the, the, you know, this crappy part about being a subcontractor in marketing, the better job you do, all you do is work yourself out of the job. So if I come to your fly shop and you're having marketing problems in a year, if you, you and I have found, a tremendous guy to run the shop that's smart and intelligent forward thinking well i'm out but you are winning and that's right. the whole point i always had that perspective so i always knew i was working myself out of a job with all these clients but i was learning so much and getting you know my shot groups were getting better and better with the things i was executing and when i got to black rifle i just felt like i was home and i said you know this is going to be really hard and i knew that there was going to be problems but i was confident that I could solve them and that I would work towards them. I, I didn't, I was a worker. I wanted to go do it. And, you know, I wanted to get in my truck and go execute. And I had a clear vision a couple of years ago. I saw the kind of the future and this clear vision with black rifle. I knew problems were going to come up and they do every day. It's a big company, but just like anything else, I was confident. I had the tools to solve those problems. It's like, I'm confident, you know, fixing a guy's tailing loop or yeah. teaching him how to cast them. I have the tools I don't know what he looks like. I don't know what his ability is, but I'm confident I can walk up there sight unseen and help him. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Black Rifle. So when they offered me a full-time job, I took it. I jumped at it and said, yeah, I'll take it. And, you know, I'm really proud of the things we've done. I mean, we've grown. You know, the numbers are public. and I'm, I won't, The revenue doesn't matter. You can look it up, but it's, it's tremendous what we've been able to do in the last. Yeah. You know, the company really started in 2014, but it's it's been a fun ride. Hope to stay here as long as they'll have me. I I um I think I learned about Black Rifle Coffee through Waypoint TV and sure. Tom yeah. Roland, you know. Um I think that was the, my first um time seeing it, you know. And then I just keep seeing it more and more, you know. So whatever you guys are doing is awesome. Well, the basics of anyone listening that, you know, everyone talks about Black Rifle or Yeti or whatever it is, right? And Yeah. At the end of the day, to quote Joe Humphreys, I guess in closing, you know, the, the basics executed to perfection. What are the basics? Two things. Authenticity is a powerful qualifier. Apologize for nothing. Be who you are. Right? I'm a fishing nerd. That's all I think about. <laughs> I love it. What, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. And then two, frequency and reach. Mm -hmm. So if you can get frequency and reach and you remain authentic, yeah. that's the basics executed to perfection you know my uh my podcast you know has grown from you know i do a little bit of everything you know um, all kinds of musicians to fishermen to whatever comedians whatever and yeah. your story is is really cool um you know and i love how you're so motivated to get better at everything and one of the things that i talk about in my podcast and with all these other folks that are on my podcast is 
you know, believing the passion and, and striving to, to get to that point. And with your story, you have all the stories of, you know, uh, fly fishing to drift media, to the youth fly fishing team, to everything that you do, you're so passionate about and you immerse yourself into it. And it's really cool, man, really inspiring. So I want to thank you, Paul, man, for being on my podcast. Um, this was amazing podcast. I learned a lot and, uh, hope to talk to you again sometime soon, man. Yeah. I appreciate you. I've listened to a long time and you do a great job. So oh, man, anything out know, and hopefully man, one day we'll get to whatever it may be, fly fish, bass fish, marlin, whatever it is. Exactly. Great. Exactly. Something. We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't even talk about bass fishing. I'm a bass geek, man. <laughs> for another day. Yeah, for sure. They're just for sure. like trout. They do the same things for the same reason. So we'll, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, what a pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much, bud. Yeah, I appreciate you. Holler if you need anything. Okay, bud. Thank you, man. Bye-bye. It's a guy jeans podcast.